It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the minimum wage in British Columbia set to go up again. It is already the highest among all Canadian provinces set to rise again. Oh, it could go up a lot here, too, if it's pegged to the inflation rate. Got Ian Tostenson standing by. First, have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Richard Zussman. The margins are so small that you really can't continue to pass that buck on to the customers. And an extra serving is on the way. The provincial government is expected to announce the minimum wage is going up again on June 1st. It's good. Uh, people need a living wage, but it makes it hard to do business. Okay, so Richard talking to Joshua Goyer there, the owner of Jones Barbecue in Victoria. Yeah, he's worried about this minimum wage going up again. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Ian Tostenson, president, BC Restaurant Association. It's always great to have him on. Ian, thanks a lot for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to have you on here. So let's take a look at this minimum wage here, Ian. Currently $15.65 an hour. That's the minimum wage in B.C., the highest among all provinces. How much is it going to go up on June? Is it June 1st it's set to go up? Yeah, June 1st is the target. We've yeah. had several conversations with the, with the uh, Minister, Minister Baines, and, uh, and what we've suggested is a 3% increase, um, and, and even at 3%, considering what we're dealing with, and I think Joshua, in that in the clip you played, is saying, no, it's getting really tough to keep passing this on. We've had, we've, we've had increase in labor costs because of supply and demand. You know, we've had um, we have a lot of restaurants. I know the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business is saying 20% of their members are, um, you know, it, teetering on the, on the border of closing, we're actually higher than that. We've got 50% of our industry right now that's up against debt repayment and still coming out of, frankly, the, the effects of the pandemic. So we have to pay our workers. That's important. Um, the question we asked the minister, though, is that do you really want to bake in, you know, over a 6% increase? Uh, and then you're going to carry that forever. So, you know, what? you and I have talked about this put in context. Say a million-dollar restaurant, that's, that's, a, that's an average little restaurant, and they do 30% as your labor cost, so it's $300,000. And suddenly you increase wages by 6% because everybody wants a raise. So now he's got a 20 or they've got a $21,000 increase in cost in that business. And the business isn't growing because the business is a bit flat right now. And they're trying to absorb food costs, uh, which has been around 10%. We've got uh, liquor costs coming up right now, maybe another 6%. So at some point, you know, how much do you want to pay for your hamburger is, is really what it yeah. is. And, you know, we yeah. think that 3% is fair. But, you know, the other side of it, in our industry, Mike, we're paying really well, right? I mean, we're paying now. I mean, with the tip workers are making anywhere from 38 to 45 bucks an hour. Kitchen help is in the 20s. 
So, you know, I, I don't know what the minister is. this a political optic game he's playing or is it the economic reality game? Well, when you take a look at that inflation rate, and this is kind of the bottom line in this issue, because last year the government uh, pegged last year's increase to the inflation rate. So 2.8% in 2021, and the minimum wage went up accordingly. Now, if they do that again, if they peg the next increase to the inflation rate, (laughs) now you're talking 6.6% with this galloping runaway inflation. So now you're talking, well, that would drive it up to what, over 16 bucks an hour? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's yeah. like $16.40. Um, right. You know, we say we're the highest in Canada. I, I have no, you know, I, I, who cares? I mean, we, we've got our own cost structure in British Columbia, and we have different issues like the health tax and the added uh, stat holiday and the five-day sick leave. So we've got a bunch of costs yeah. here that, you know, aren't necessarily comparative to other provinces. But the point is, we have to pay. But, you know, if it was my government, I'd be a little selective, maybe by industry or by regions, as to how we approach this. Because just adding 6% plus to wages just adds to the inflation. And as you can see, inflation is starting to come down in B.C. We could be down at 2 or 3%. Now, the other point is that we have raised the minimum wage since 2017, 18 more in, in some cases more than um, the consumer price index to sort of get it to a, you know the high rate it is right now. So even when there is a two percent you know consumer price um, index cost increase, you know in some cases we were five four or five percent increase in minimum wage. So BC has been quite fair, but I think it would be more fair to be three percent, but to go over six percent, I think we're going to have yeah. some unintended consequences. Speaking of Ian Tostenson, BC Restaurant Association. Now, this BC NDP government, this is a labor-friendly government. This is a union-friendly government. I think the BC Federation of Labor, the largest union organization in BC, has a lot of sway with this government. Let's listen to Suzanne Skidmore because she's the president of the BC Federation of Labor, and she wants this big hike in the minimum wage. Here, Here is her justification for it, then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. The reality is for workers, it's long overdue. It's long overdue catch up. Um, And that money doesn't go sit in a bank account. It doesn't go uh, sit in a savings account or people aren't saving up to buy homes or or things like that. Uh, Those that money goes directly back into the community. Okay, so the money, the raise would get recycled back into the local economy. So, Ian, what do you think of that argument? Maybe if you hike the minimum wage this much, maybe people have more money to spend at restaurants. Well, there's a certain, I think there's a certain truth to that. Uh, Alberta just released an interesting report uh, on minimum wage they did, and um, they concluded that when they put their minimum wage up over a success of about three or four years, they actually lost employment in the sort of 15 to 24 uh, age bracket. And talking to some restaurants about this in prep for this morning, they said, yeah, we're looking at technology to reduce our labor. We just can't just keep paying. So we... We have to be really careful here in what, we, what we're doing is that the D.C. Federation of Labor represents some pretty big industrial-type businesses, and it's fine for them to say that because those are much different than the pizza place on the corner on Blanchard Street in Victoria, which is really struggling and doesn't have those same kind of resources. And so, well, but I, I, I wonder... Say, though, Mike, that yeah. I was going to say, I would say that we don't have a minimum wage issue in our industry right now just because of the supply and demand of labor that we've been going through for the last, you know, three years. 
Okay, I wonder if I've seen some restaurants that have already started putting robots to work in their restaurants. You got robot waiters. Do you think you could see yeah. more more of that kind of thing? Yeah, you could in some of the, in the more of the uh, ethnic restaurants. Um, they're quite cute, actually. But you're also yeah. seeing <laughs> technology at the table where, you know, our servers are now becoming order takers versus order makers. And so they just they say, look, Mike, you've got six tables. Uh, now you've got nine tables. I'm going to use technology so you can manage the tables more. So just you're going to take orders now. So you start to eliminate uh, the you know, eliminate jobs. Now servers, um, interestingly enough, the wages don't make a lot that different for a tip server. I mean, um, you know, we did a survey in Victoria. A lot of a lot of servers are making you know close to eighty thousand dollars a year pretty easily uh, wow. because of the tip effect. So, okay. you know, this is where we, we said to the minister, careful what we want to do. We'd like to have a little bit of money to provide some other things like health benefits and work-life balance uh, in restaurants versus just simply putting mm-hmm. it into the cost of increased uh, minimum wage. When do you anticipate to get an answer from government here? Because this is a bit of a guessing game going on now with industry. Do you think the government should, should yeah. just announce what they're going to do here? No, well, um, as of last week, they had not determined what it was going to be. Uh, yeah. And I think, in fairness, it's you know it's a, our collective economy here. We should be discussing this business. Uh, the businesses should be able to plan. But you know, we're March, April, May, June. We're not too far away from June first, and yeah. it's you know we're we need a little bit longer planning cycle. Now, the deal was is that inflation would go up by consumer price index each year. But when you're at two percent, that's easy to do. The question now, I think the government needs to be a bit bold and say, let's do three, three and a quarter percent, right. because we know that next year inflation will likely be down. And if it isn't down next year, then we'll make some adjustments. But I, I just think that it should come out now, okay. uh, Mike, versus waiting any longer. And thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. All right, let's talk about the Vancouver mom now who is suing the makers of the Fortnite video game for addicting her son. Now, the mom here says that her son is just hopelessly addicted to the game, plays all the time, hour after hour, day after day. She says the video game makers deliberately designed this game to addict kids. Got Carmi Levy standing by to discuss first. Have a listen to this report. Global News anchor Paul Hasem. A Vancouver parent has filed a class action lawsuit against the makers of Fortnite, alleging the popular video game is designed to be as addictive as possible for kids. 
NBC Supreme Court, the plaintiff, identified as AB, says her son has developed an adverse dependence on the game. The lawsuit alleges it includes intentional design elements that encourages players to repeatedly return, such as frequent updates and rewards for completing challenges. It also argues the game's creator, Epic Games, enriches itself through in-game purchases with real money. Epic Games says the claims in the lawsuit don't reflect how the game operates and ignores the options around parental controls. None of these allegations have been proven in court. Okay, let's discuss. This is an interesting case for sure. I got two boys at home. They're both video gamers. I know they've played this game in the past, but they got kind of bored with it and moved on to other games. But I know that a lot of kids spend a lot of time playing this particular game. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Carmi Levy. Carmi is a tech analyst, journalist, and digital marketer. Very pleased to welcome him. Carmi, thanks a lot for coming on today. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, can you tell, have you played Fortnite? Oh, yes, I have many times, both on my own as well as with uh, my kids. They were teenagers when it first sort of became a thing a few years back. And yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's uh, I, I, I heard them buzzing about it. I wanted to see what all the deal was all about. And I yeah. ended up uh, becoming a bit of a gamer with them. Okay, well, that's interesting. So tell me, why is this game so popular? I mean, this is not a new game. It's been around for a while, but man, it, it's got some longevity for sure, because I know a lot of people are still playing it. What is it about this game, do you think, makes it so popular? Well, I think it's kind of the open-endedness of it all. It's been around since about 2017, and, and it's available across every platform out there. So you can play it on your PC, on your on your Microsoft game console, on your Sony game console, on your mobile device. Pretty much anything. Uh, and so essentially what you do is you're dropped into this game space, literally dropped into with 100 other people. And then right. you, it's, you fight them to the death until the last one standing wins. And it sounds simple, but it's, it's, it is that simplicity that, it's a, that is its major appeal. It's generally free to play. You can, of course, buy, you can pay in-game for other things like uh, better weapons, better, uh, better armor, um, you know, other features of the game. You can buy what are called loot boxes. Um, but if you just want to play for free, you can. And so it's yeah. easy to get into because people are always playing it around the world. They're all networked. And it's fairly easy to, okay, I've played one game. I'm done. Now I'm back to my regular world. So it just has this kind of visceral appeal that gamers seem to really like. You don't have to be an expert in order to participate. Um, and, of course, over time, you just kind of get sucked more and more into it. Right. It really <laughs> does have an appeal. I can appreciate it. Okay, well, let's talk about this this case here now. This is really interesting. The Vancouver parents suing the makers of the game, saying her son became addicted to the game. So let's have a listen. This is not new. This company has been accused of this before. Let's listen to this report first here from ABC News. Let's listen. Boston mom Deanna Greenstein says she noticed her 12 and 13-year-old sons became obsessed almost instantly. They were coming home from school and they didn't want to go outside and play basketball. They didn't want to go and physically hang out with their friends. The World Health Organization has categorized video game addiction as a mental health disorder. They actually, just like with a drug or alcohol, they actually experience withdrawal symptoms. They might feel kind of down or upset or irritable when they're not able to play their games. Yeah, and they've actually done studies on this game, Carmi. They've done like brain scans of kids playing the game and they say they can see the brain sort of dopamine centers in the brain kind of lighting up when kids play this game. So do you think that, I mean, what do you think of that argument that kids are getting like literally addicted to the game? 
I think it's fair to say I, I tracked the story when the World Health Health Organization first, uh, you know, called video games potentially addictive, called them yeah. a mental health disorder. Um, and I think, I mean, truth be, truth be told, anything can be addictive, but video games, especially this particular one, are designed from the start to feed into that. That's that's how you achieve business success. You don't create a successful bit, uh, video game. Uh, if it doesn't induce this kind of addictive behavior in players, if people aren't interested and don't come back to it, you don't make money. Um, so yeah. I think it, and, and this argument, I, you know, I've been playing video games since I was a kid. Arguably, I went into technology. My career path was largely sparked by my early interest in video games. So I think as a technology, it can be used for good or it can be addictive if it's not controlled properly. And I think parents need to sort of recognize that you don't just turn the game off and say, no, all video games are bad. Anything can be addictive, but as long as mom and dad and caregivers are part of that journey, they can watch for the signs of addictive behaviors. They can watch for the signs of withdrawal of, you know, withdrawal from other kinds of activities and ensure that their kids are using the technology in a fair and balanced way. In many cases, that is not the case. Parents just hand it over to their kids sight unseen, and then they disappear for hours and mom and dad have no idea what's going on. The problem is parents aren't part of that journey. It makes it easier for kids to fall into addictive behaviors, which of course are fed by the technology. Right. And that leads to, the, I think, the kind of obvious debate and question here is how much responsibility lies with Epic Games, the company that made this game, is making so much money off of it for kids who spend so much of their lives playing the game. And how much lies with the parents for not putting down some markers or some limits or rules here? Like, do you think that do you think the game maker bears any responsibility here or is this down to the parents? I think it's a terrific question. And I think the answer is a bit of both. I think partnership is the answer here. And what frightens me here is that Epic Games has behaved almost from the beginning uh, in a way that you know it didn't want to step up to uh, to that responsibility or that shared responsibility. It took two years for the company to introduce any form of parental controls onto this platform. And so while it speaks now about, well, you know, we have all these parental controls, why didn't you introduce them first off? So again, yeah. I think Epic Games could have stepped up, but didn't. And I think a lot of parents could have stepped up, but didn't. And I think this particular case is a warning sign to all parents that uh, they need to be more visible in this and that we can't simply assume, oh, don't worry, the gaming industry has my kids' best interests at heart. No, they don't. They're capitalist, <laughs> you know, profit-driven companies, and they will take advantage of every loophole they can to make as much money as they can. And they'll apologize when kids get addicted. They'll apologize. This company just paid a half-billion-dollar fine in the U.S. for this kind of behavior just a couple months ago. So, of course, they'll say they're mea culpas, but... Uh, they'll get away with as much as they can. And if I'm, right. you know, as a parent, I, I watch for that because I certainly wouldn't trust big tech. Tell me about that fine, because I've read about that, too, that this company paid out a big fine in the United States here. Why? What were they fined for? So there's something called COPA, which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And basically, it's, this has been around since the days of, you know, television, Saturday morning cartoons, when, you know, there were rules about how you could advertise to kids and where the lines were and what would happen if you crossed those lines. And so the, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, essentially said that Epic repeatedly violated those terms 
um, that they allowed the company to be exposed to strangers on the platform, um, that the platform exposed them to what they call dangerous and psychologically traumatizing issues, and they failed to introduce adequate parental control systems. So, you know, basically uh. all of the things that we're seeing in this case in BC, companies already paid a huge amount of money into American authorities for violating those very rules. And so I've been watching that case pretty closely. And as I see this lawsuit now move north of the border, it means that Canadian parents are now on notice is essentially saying, look, they paid a huge price south of the border. Now they should do the same yeah. here. Right. Speaking of tech journalist, Carmi Levy, we're talking about the Vancouver mom suing the makers of Fortnite, very popular video game for addicting her son we heard in that report carmy the other element is very controversial about fortnite and lots of games do this and it's the micropayment system right so like you said it's basically free to play the game but then there you can buy updates and upgrades in the game i remember my sons once telling me that this is what they call a pay to win game mm, <laughs> exactly <laughs> like if you get stuck on a hard level, it, you know, you've got to pay money to upgrade your armor or weapon or whatever. Or you're going to be stuck forever pay to win. They make a lot exactly. of money off of that, right? Oh, they absolutely do. And what's insidious yeah. about it is, is there's no friction to it. So, you know, when the game is first set up, if if the children have access to mom and dad's credit card, they set it up once. And then as they're playing in the game, they just, OK, I'm going to get this weapon. And there's no there's no checkout process. It's not like buying something on an e-commerce site where there's a deliberate moment where you're like, okay, now I'm going to actually pay for it. It just happens quietly in the background. And there's yeah. so many cases of mom and dad at the end of the month getting a massive credit card bill because the kid was buying everything in the game. Because who wants to lose the game if you don't buy them? You're just going to get left behind. So and and, and there's another like another piece. This are loot boxes, which are things that you buy you don't even know what's in them. It's it's likened to a form of gambling. But the kids also feel, well, if I don't buy this, how am I going to keep up in the game? I'm I'm not going to be able to. So it's you put it all together, and it's essentially big tech, big gaming industry, big gaming companies like Epic taking advantage of, frankly, our, our most vulnerable kids um, and making a huge amount of money off of them. And then, you know, paying it off when they get caught, but recognizing it's still good for the bottom line. This is a model that, as a parent, it it frightens and disgusts me, and I I, I really wish we had better legislation on the books that would per, that would prevent this kind of thing from happening in the first place. Because right now, a bit of a legislative black hole, black hole. There are no laws that protect kids from this kind of predatory behavior. All right, we're talking about the Vancouver parents suing the makers of the Fortnite video game for addicting her son. Okay, so who has the most responsibility here? Is it the makers of this game or is it the parent? Is it a combination of both? Phone me right now, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Carmi Levy is my guest. Paul in Port Moody. Hi, Paul, what do you think? I think it's a little bit of a boat, but I really do think that the, the federal government needs to get involved. You know, I commend her for suing, but the government has the power to, to get some control. I uh, Roblox is a, a game that my kid is, uh, you know, addicted to, too. And at the very beginning, we used to have it on our, the credit card, and he would go through a ton of money. So we took the credit card off the, off the, the tablet or iPad or whatever. We buy the cards. It's $15 a week, and it's continually in your pocket all the time they're asking for for new stuff 
and 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 I believe that the government is the only only entity that could really control this thing. You know, sixty dollars a month adds up. Back in the day, we would just you know buy a game, throw it in the Nintendo, and you know use it for two months, and that's it. And yeah. it, it would be like you know, it, it, it's incredible the amount of money that these guys are making, and it, it, it reminds me of the mafia. It really does. <laughs> okay, Ro- Roblox. Yes, I've heard of that game. Another very popular game. Is this another one where like the kids can pay for stuff in the game? Oh yeah, it absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. Sorry, I was I was asking I was asking uh, Paul that Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and it, and, and, and at the, at, you know at, when it first came out, we were spending at least uh, one hundred and fifty dollars uh, a month. Whoa! So, it was through the credit, yeah, it was through the credit card, and he would just hit the button. So we had to take it off the the machine. And now they have cards where you go to the 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 every uh, shoppers or whatever, and you pick up the card. Then we we limit to fifteen dollars a week. But he's definitely yeah. addicted. Definitely. Yeah, boy. That, okay, that's a tough one. Thank you for sharing that, Carmi. What do you think? That's a very typical experience in a lot of households. Uh, it kind of aligns with mine in the early days of uh, Fortnite as well, and I think a lot of parents can relate to that. Uh, you know, the, the the sad reality is is the legislation that we have on the books now to protect kids against this kind of behavior. Uh, it, it 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 dates back to the early days of television, and so a lot of it revolved around kids advertising. It doesn't take into account software as a service, these subscription-based yeah. services. It doesn't take into account e-commerce, the ease with which we can have these kinds of transactions. And so, right. uh, I fully agree with Paul. It's time for a rethink on on the laws that that protect our kids because they're woefully unable to. Okay address the issues that we're seeing with these technologies, with these d- online games. And as a result, okay. uh, these companies are kind of squeezing into the in-between and getting away with murder, Good. basically. Go to another call, Kevin and Kamloops. Hi, Kevin, go ahead. Hey, so uh big thing with these microtransactions and games nowadays, the big thing is, is uh, that that's really how these gaming companies make their money. If they didn't have these microtransactions within these games, they'd be charging people 120, 150 bucks for just the game itself, just to actually be able to continue to make new content for the game. Because, um, of course, everybody's going to have to pay their employees to be, you know, pu- pushing out new updates and all that stuff. And that's kind of what these microtransactions are really for: is just to accumulate the money to keep on putting out new updates for the games that are, you know, getting two years, three years, oh, yeah. four years old. And, oh, yeah. uh, the, you the, know. the maker, the makers. Of, thank you, Kevin, for the call. You got running out of time, but the makers of Fortnite have made millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on these microtransactions. Twenty seconds, Carmi. You think the government should step in, do something? Eh? I think it's high time, and I think we need to see legislation that is reflective of the technologies that kids are using today, because right now it reflects yesterday's technology. Um, and then, of course, I think it. It's it's a sign to parents, a signal to parents uh, that they need to be part of this equation as well. The law isn't going to ultimately protect your kids. The buck stops with you, mom and dad. Carmi, thanks for coming on today. Great being here, Mike. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. All right, here we go now as a couple of very interesting court cases we're going to discuss now for you. And these involve injuries in uh, recreational sports here. Now we've got the North Vancouver soccer player who did a slide tackle on an opponent in North Van. His opponent was injured in that play. His opponent suffered a dislocated shoulder. Now he got a yellow card from the ref in the game but a judge handed out an even stiffer penalty, $103,000 in damages after that uh, slide tackle on a pitch in North Van. Is that going too far? That's really interesting to me. Also, we'll discuss the Gwyneth Paltrow case. Now, if you followed this one, the Oscar-winning actress here uh, facing a lawsuit that she injured a man while skiing in Utah, uh, the man said that he suffered a, a terrible injury when Gwyneth Paltrow slammed into him on a ski hill, suing for a, a lot of money. Uh, she countersued him and said, actually, he hit her. So we'll get into this now. That case going on right now as we speak. I've got Eric McGracken standing by to discuss. First, let's uh, let's start with the, the soccer case here. Now, this is lawyer Seth Wielden, he represented the guy who was injured by an opposing player with a slide tackle here. He was successful for his client in court here. Let's have a listen. We all sign up for some risks, but this wasn't part of what we signed up for. And so it was really about the judge determining, did it cross the threshold of what we consent to do when we play sports? The vast majority of uh, sports don't involve injury. The vast majority of injuries don't involve law. Um, but it's worth considering what your rights are. Okay, well, he certainly went to court on behalf of his client and argued that his client's rights had been uh, abrogated here with this slide tackle. He was injured on the soccer field and won a big judgment here. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Eric McGracken. Eric is a personal injury lawyer, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Eric, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yeah, Mike, thanks as always for having me on. You bet. I appreciate it. This soccer ruling here really jumped out at me. I mean, I got kids who've played soccer. I've been to lots of soccer games where I see guys get hurt, you know, collisions on the field. But man, oh man, $103,000. This was a judgment in the B.C. Supreme Court. Uh, The guy does a slide tackle. His opponent falls down, dislocates his shoulder and wins a $103,000 judgment. Eric, what do you think of this case? So the number itself, that's going to reflect how serious the injury is. And I'll tell you this, Mike, even though that number maybe leads a lot of headlines, zero controversy there. It's a very bad injury. And the parties consented to that number. So they actually settled that out of court. The plaintiff and the defendant said, look, this is what the injury is worth. We don't even have to fight about that. And the fight only came down to was the defendant negligent? And like I told you on Twitter, the law doesn't stop operating on the field of play, be it criminal law or be it civil law. Every now and then you'll see a lawsuit or you'll even see criminal charges 
based on what happens on the field of play. So these cases aren't common, but they're not legally unusual. Okay, is a slide tackle in soccer, is that illegal under the rules of soccer, or is that a legal, is that a legal tackle? Because you see that kind of move a lot, like a player will slide along the ground, try and get the ball away from his opponent. Is that allowed? It's allowed in some versions of the game, and in some versions it's outlawed. So here, in this league, slide tackling was legal. But that's not what led to liability. The court said, look, these guys consented to being slide tackled, but it has to be within the context of going for the ball. And what the court found here was the defendant approached from the plaintiff's blind side. Plaintiff didn't see him coming. The ball was ahead of the plaintiff, so the defendant had no chance of getting the ball. The defendant didn't just slide, but actually left both his feet off the ground, so it's almost like a drop kick. Feet got entangled, and the plaintiff went down hard. And so in the words of the judge, like the court heard a whole bunch of witnesses testifying about what happened. In the words of the judge, the defendant wasn't just negligent, but he was outright reckless in what he did. And so the court said, that's gone too far, so we are going to impose civil liability here. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in this particular game, the player who did the slide tackle here received a yellow card from the referee, and the opposing team got to take a a penalty kick, according to the decision by the judge. I find that interesting. Like, if this this tackle was so reckless and so egregious, why was he not given a, a red card? Yeah, and, and perhaps he could have been. I mean, there's always referee discretion, right? The the legal takeaway is what happens on the field of play. The immediate sport consequences don't dictate what the further legal fallout's going to be. So maybe the ref didn't make the right call, but you still have the right to sue. Maybe the ref went over the top with the yellow card. Maybe it was an entirely fair play and the lawsuit ends up getting dismissed so at the end of the day the plaintiff still has their own cards to play if they wish to sue and and the immediate on-field consequence the court's going to want to hear what happened but that's not going to be the be-all end-all of whether there is civil liability the interesting thing here is that the referee like you mentioned there were a lot of witnesses in this case and the referee testified in court and testified that he considered handing the player a a red card, which is a more severe penalty than a yellow card you're throwing out of the game. He he said he decided to give him the benefit of the doubt. So uh, the referee apparently had some doubt about the severity of the tackle, but the judge judge clearly didn't. Yeah, and you know, the referee has to make a decision in live time, seeing what they saw. There's no instant replay, and and they make their call, right? Like, it is what it is. The court... Here's a parade of witnesses. So I don't know how many testified, but there were several witnesses all telling a very similar story. In fact, yeah. the only person who told a different story was the defendant who said, no, no, it didn't go down like that. And here's the court's words. The court said the defendant's version of events, it was rejected, and it was, quote, self-serving and wholly unbelievable. So the court basically oh. said, look, defendant, you're full of it. Everybody else is telling me the same story. And and when I've heard everybody's version, including the referees, it's pretty consistent. And it leads me to believe you did something outright reckless for your fellow competitors. 
Okay, there's got a lot of people talking this case about whether this has gone too far and what kind of risk do you accept when you play any kind of contact sport. And listen to this. This is interesting. Now, here's Vancouver soccer coach Michael Ibrahim, and he says that soccer in British Columbia especially is really too rough. The players are too aggressive. Have a listen to what he says here. I played in many countries around the world, and this uh, our Canadian soccer here, unfortunately, it's a mix of hockey and soccer. But the game here in Canada, especially in BC, it's rough. It played in a matter of kill or to be killed. I've been coaching for three years, and never change. Okay, kill or be killed, he says. And he says a lot of players approach it in BC, he said especially as a combination of soccer and hockey, like too rough. Do you think that's the case? Well, he'll know better than me. I'm not involved yeah. in recreational soccer. But again, it comes down to what's the, what's the culture of the league, right? You're going to have some beer leagues where some guys are taking out their aggressions on each other. You're going to have others where any kind of contact is frowned upon. And so you want to find a sports outlet that you're comfortable with if you're going there. But even in the more rugged leagues, there's going to be uh, thresholds you can't cross. I always... Think of the NHL example of McSorley Bertuzzi. You remember that? Oh, yeah, sure. You could do some rough stuff in the NHL, but you know what you can't do? Come up from somebody's blind side and whack him in the head with your stick. The criminal law got involved. He was criminally convicted for that. So even in a rough culture, the law is still going to draw some boundaries in British Columbia of what's not acceptable. Okay, let's quickly talk about the Gwyneth Paltrow case. I find this interesting. So this case underway again today. The Oscar-winning actress expected to testify herself in this case. So this comes down to a collision on a ski hill several years ago. She was sued by a man who said that Gwyneth Paltrow slammed into this guy on a ski hill, and he suffered uh, some serious injuries, including brain damage, sued her for a million dollars plus, and then it was reduced to a lower amount. And this is an interesting case here. She countersued him. Let's listen to this report now from ABC News. Let's listen. 76-year-old Terry Sanderson accuses Paltrow of slamming into him at Utah's Deer Valley Resort, causing his concussion and four broken ribs. She knew that skiing that way, looking somewhere else, blindly skiing down a mountain by looking up and to the side, was reckless. Okay, let's listen to Paltrow's lawyer here. Now, she countersued the, uh, him and said, well, he hit her, actually. Let's listen to that. But Paltrow's lawyers deny she caused the crash. We believe it to be utter BS. Her attorneys claim it was Sanderson who plowed into Paltrow's back. Gwyneth was hurt by Mr. Sanderson's negligence. It rattled her and it physically hurt her. Anderson is seeking $300,000 in damages after first suing for $3 million. Okay. Eric, what do you think of this case? I don't like somebody suing for $3 million and then saying, just kidding, 10% of that is fair. <laughs> I mean, that's always a poor optic. But I'll say this. Just like on the field of play, the law doesn't stop operating. It doesn't stop operating on the slopes. And so just hearing that, you've got two different versions of events. Somebody's either lying, or in, in the language of judges, to be more charitable, somebody's a poor historian, right? So somebody's not right about what happened. But if you're skiing carelessly, not paying attention, and you slam into somebody, and I don't know which one of the two of them was the party that did that, but yeah. if you do that, you can be sued, and there's nothing legally controversial about that. On the slopes, 
on the roadway, walking around. You can't, you know, you know, you think like you're texting and walking and you walk into somebody and push them into traffic and they get maimed. You can get sued for that. If you're going down a mountain on skis and you're not paying attention and you slam into somebody and bust their bones or hurt their brain, you can be sued. It just comes down to proving who the careless party was in that situation. Might be one of them, might be both of them, might be neither of them. But it's not legally novel to suggest one skier can be liable for injuring another skier. It certainly can happen. Okay, we're talking law and order on the soccer field in the ski hill with my guest, Eric McGracken. Lots of calls. Rob in North Van. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Um, I've been coaching and uh, playing soccer since 19... 19- 73, and I'm actually coaching five soccer teams right now, but I actually coach in the league where this incident happened. Mm. And um, we just finished our season last weekend. And I, I'll tell you, we start from September and go through and into March. And whatever Ibrahim, I know who that guy is, what he was saying about all the violence in soccer and stuff, it yeah. really doesn't happen. If you're in a season, you might have some pushing and shoving in, in a couple of games. But I actually know about this incident. We were um, playing at the time. We had heard about it. And your lawyer will probably tell you there's more behind this. You know, when a judge looks at it, is that um, some players have got a reputation for playing rough. And uh, and uh, it's not just what occurs in one game. It could be happening. Okay. In other games, and I think that's a little bit more to that that story about in this case. Thank you, thank you for that, Rob. Well, I'm not sure what kind of evidence in that regard was in this case. Eric, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I don't know that having a history of being a rough player makes a difference. It's like a car crash; you could be the worst driver ever, but be rear-ended at a red light, and it's not your fault, right? So, sure. so what, it comes down to the moment that this happened. Was he careless when he executed this particular slide tackle? Yes or right. no? Maybe the context of some rough play leading up to it uh, helps put that incident into focus, but his history probably had very little bearing on the legal outcome of this case. Tristan in Kelowna. Hi, Tristan. Go ahead. Hey there. I'll keep it brief. Well, I, I don't know much about soccer, but... I used to play rugby, and one one thing that we always used to say is you really you should play within the confines of the rule and the confines of the of the game on the pitch. And uh, you know, if if the slide tackle was legal and that's allowable, then I think there's no issue. But again, if it's if it's grossly disproportionate to the rules and he's jumping off both feet and doing more of a kind of a, a jumping slide tackle, then that's not appropriate. Um, yeah. And then in terms in terms of the Gwyneth Paltrow thing, I'm an avid skier, and I wanted to touch on that. I'll give you ten seconds. My thing is really most people just say whatever the downhill skier is, you know, whoever's coming from up top, it's really their responsibility to make sure the way is clear. Uh, so we'll see what the results of the court case are. Yeah, thank thank you for that, Tristan. That is turning into an interesting kind of he said, she said case there. Aaron and Langley. Hi, Aaron. we got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, th- yeah, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, so I was just mentioning the other gentleman there that, uh, you know, my sister and I were up on Whistler there about two weeks ago, and we were coming down the hill. We're just snowboarding down the hill, and this guy comes flying over top of the knoll, like smashes so hard into my sister. And she's a school teacher, oh. and and she's unfortunately now been off work for two weeks because she got hit so hard that she's got vertigo. So oh my god! Happened. Yeah, so she's off work for like two weeks, even probably longer. So I go to help my sister up, go to the bottom of the hill, trying to find him. He just basically got up and just 
feet away as fast as he could. And then okay. I couldn't find him. So now she's basically holding the bag for, you know, well, she's got benefits, obviously. But, you know, it was just such a terrible thing. The guy didn't apologize or nothing. Just so you, and you don't, know, you don't know who hit her. The guy disappeared. Just disappeared. Got up yeah. and just was gone. And so, okay. I hope she. Got, I hope she gets better, Aaron. Thank. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Just out of time, but I certainly hope that she. I, I wish her a full and complete recovery. Eric, great segment. Tons of calls coming in. Love to have you back on this. Hey, thanks, Mike. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.